There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 21 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, July the 6th. First, I'll be talking to Professor Karen Sanders, Head of the School of Management at the University of New South Wales Business School. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. We'll be talking about how management should handle workplace sexual harassment. And then I have a chat with economist Stephen Kakoulis, talking about Australia's falling house prices and soft property market, and what that means for the economy. But first, let's talk to Professor Karen Sanders. Karen, women's experience of sexual harassment is hardly new. How does it play into gender politics and inequality? Well, maybe I can um, answer that question in another way, because uh, some people make the connection between gender inequality and that women don't have the, the senior positions um, in, in comparison to men. I'm not sure if that is a direct relationship. For, for me, it's uh, much more the power, the intimidation, the aggressiveness that even if I... So I'm a head of school, but there I can feel really intimidated by staff members. And I can imagine that even if you have females at higher positions, that they feel intimidated, um, that they see that um, men are stronger, physical, more power, 
uh, can become aggressive, can stand too much to you. So in my opinion, there's not a direct relationship. It's much more the physical elements. I see. I see. Now, the, the Me Too movement and the bankruptcy of the Harvey Weinstein's film and TV production company seems to be a watershed moment in the whole issue of sexual harassment. What impact do you think all of this has had on the issue? Um, I think a huge influence. It's so much easier to talk about it. So, in my opinion, the whole hashtag Me Too it's not only Hollywood, it's uh, moving now to all industries and people are aware of it. And uh, I, I think it's, it's a good start and it will continue for, for much longer because I, I have the idea we need to talk much more about it. Men need to be much more aware of their power, even if they are in a lower position, they still have their power and sometimes they use power. So I, I don't see that it's always men at senior positions, although they have, in a way, double power. They have power because they are a man, and they have power because they are at the senior position. Um, so, in my opinion, we need to talk about this much more in meetings, in uh, school board meetings, and, and what is really important, in my opinion, given my uh, background in human resource management research, we as HR researchers and practitioners need to help in that discussion. And until now, HR is not that much on the front as I would like to see. I mean, that's one of the big issues. I mean, social media now seems to be playing a greater role in this issue. Like, for example, in the old days, a complaint would be made to HR. Now, HR and other managers are on the back foot because employees are discussing it, say, in anonymous workplace chat rooms or they're posting it on blogs. And that places HR in a very, very difficult position. How should it be handled? Um, well, in the, in the first place, to be um, part of the discussion. In all the uh, hashtag MeToo uh, communication, I don't see many HR Practitioners, I don't see them in social media. I, I don't hear them in, in interviews. Um, so in my opinion, as HR practitioners, and, and uh, well, I'm a researcher, but I feel in a way that I'm connected to all the HR practitioners, we should have an answer. And uh, for instance, the Australian uh, Human Resource Institute, we should work together to, ha to have an answer and to be part of that discussion. Because what is now going on, and if you have a complaint from a female, it's difficult for any man to, to have an answer because it is already, you are already a victim uh, if you have done it or not. And I think it, it should be possible to, to have it more to HR if you have a complaint, um, if you have the idea that uh, someone is intimidating you, then uh, go to HR of your company. HR can uh, play an important role to find out what is the information of the other person. If it is the case, they should know if there are more complaints from other females. So it, it, for me, it, it is uh, not in balance uh, at the moment. Uh, even if you, and in a, in a way, all females can accuse every male in, in uh, uh, hashtag me too and in social media before there is a proper uh, investigation. 
Now, Karen, though, what processes should HR have in place? I have spoken to some women who have been subjects of sexual harassment, and they have said to me that when they took it up with HR, they felt HR came down on the side of the organisation rather than them. What's your view about that and what should be done? Well, if that is the case, that that is not a good way uh, for uh, how HR should play in it. I think uh, uh, HR should have or should motivate uh, management in every organization to have a code of conduct, what is allowed and what is not allowed. If, If that is not the case, then... The first activity should be a code of conduct, and many organizations have one. So I think that's just a matter of having one in every organization. And then I think it should be part of the code of conduct. If you feel intimidated, if you feel that uh, a male colleague is too aggressive to you, um, coming too close to you, and and there's the wall, and you cannot do one step uh, behind anymore, that you go to HR. Uh, and they should help you. They should know more if if this is a complaint, which is more often about this person. And then they should help to have the conversation and should help you. And even if that is a male senior person, if that happens more, uh, if HR receives more complaints about the um, same person, then um, it should be... Um, that HR inform senior management and they should make a decision about uh, next steps for this person. And that can be a good conversation, that can be a training, that can be a workshop. Sometimes men need to be aware what what is their influence on on other, in this case females. And uh, together with some other people, I did a study about uh, domestic violence. What what is the influence of domestic violence on the in the workplace? And um, although we still have people uh, telling me domestic violence is only domestic, that's not really an issue for HR and for in the workplace. Um, we are really lucky that some um, big organisations. Um, Australian Stock Exchange uh, organization do have some HR practices for domestic violence, for instance. And on on the other hand, not that many managers know how to handle domestic violence. So if there is a victim in 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 my department, for instance, what can I do? How can I recognize it? What can how can I help them? If we look at all the Australian organizations. Only 18 and 40 percent of the managers uh, received a training to recognize uh, victims of domestic violence. That is really low. So there, there is some work to be done. So obviously there is some work to be done educating managers yeah. in sexual harassment and domestic violence as two critical issues. Yeah, and that, that is in, in two elements. First, uh, that they can recognize it. And, and we know uh, domestic violence victims are not only females, there are more and more men. It's not only physical, it's more and more mental. Um, so they should recognize it. And then the, the second step is how can we help them? Um, some people want to have some leave. Uh, other people like to have coaching. Other people like to... Uh, that it's only known uh, by the supervisor, but not by everyone, while other females 
like to have it known by everyone. So they, they, there are ways to help victims of domestic violence. But managers need to be um, educated in that way. And I think HR can play a role in it. And uh, that would mean uh, it would become a priority for organisations to actually put that on the agenda to say, we will be educating our managers, our HR people will be taking proactive steps in these areas. Oh, definitely. And uh, back to your first question, that can be that if HR and managers are much more trained to do it, that the inequality in, in positions in organisations differ as well. That um, if you are much more aware of the position of females and that some males are really intimidating, aggressive, and that sometimes is an, a barrier for not going to the next promotion or not being selected, that we are much more aware of the position of females in organization. And that would make a better career paths for women and it would also create better organizations? Definitely, yes. Karen Sanders, thank you very much for your time. And now, let's talk to economist Stephen Kukoulos. Stephen Kukoulos, we've got some worrying figures from CoreLogic yesterday regarding the housing market. There's been a slip in housing prices across the country. What's your view about this? Yeah, another fall. Not not precipitous, but the interesting thing about it is that it's not just this one month or two months. This is the ninth consecutive month of fall in house prices nationwide and the interesting thing about it is that it's spread from you know the obvious areas of Darwin and Perth where the mining downturn had been impacting house prices in those two cities and now it's Sydney and Melbourne Sydney's been falling it's off about four and a half percent from the peak Melbourne down about two two and a half percent from its peak uh, late last year so in a sense a lot of the um, uh, calmer sort of views are that, look, prices have doubled basically in the last seven or eight or nine years. Uh, you know, a three or four or five percent fall isn't terribly much. However, there is a concern and we, you know, one of the lessons from the global financial crisis was that when we saw house prices fall in the likes of Ireland and in London and in Spain and the US, when they fell, it actually impacted on banks it impacted on how consumers were feeling about their financial position and their wealth. And, of course, if people are feeling uncomfortable about their personal finances, they tend to scale back their spending on discretionary items, the economy weakens, and then you get this this cycle of, um, of weakness coming through. So, in a sense, it's not yet a worry, but, you know, nine months in a row where uh, house prices have fallen, it's... Um, it's something that's certainly going to be at the forefront of what the RBA and uh, other market watchers are thinking. Well, the other issue too is that there's a high level of household indebtedness, which means that many people would be uh, facing a lot of negative equity as a result. Indeed. So, yes, anyone who took out their loans at the peak of the market, and in and in Sydney and Melbourne, it was around about the September quarter last year, so that's uh, you know, eight or nine months ago. In Perth, there's a lot of people with negative equity in their, uh, in their properties too, and that's a concern. But at the moment, it seems from the bank um, data that the level of bad debts is still quite low. So even though uh, some proportion of the... Uh, of the housing ownership market has small amounts of negative equity, people are still paying off their loans. You know, unemployment hasn't spiked up yet. And even though wages growth is very, very low, it really hasn't spilled over into a concerning issue of, uh, of bad debts. However, that negative equity issue is, is a problem 
if and or when the uh, people are forced to sell into a falling market. If that is the case, then, of course, you get banks uh, losing money. They're, they're, they're losing money because not only the, the householder that loses the money, the bank's in trouble too if people go bankrupt. Now, that's that's a more extreme view, of course. That's not the, the main view. But at the moment, there's a risk that that is slowly but surely starting to build, particularly with, with banks also tightening their credit in the wake of the uh, Banking Royal Commission. Indeed, indeed. And the Banking Royal Commission will have an impact on bank lending as a result, won't it? Indeed it is. And it's a two-way street, interesting, that one, Leon, because um, it's not only the banks being a bit more restrictive in their lending, obviously, when they're being exposed for uh, their, uh, let's call it, um, (laughs) flamboyant lending practices of recent years, let's say, they don't want to be seen to be lending, you know, 30-year mortgages to 80-year-olds and things like that, which they have done in the past. So they're tightening up on their credit, which is understandable and actually quite a prudent thing. But it's also from the demand side that, yeah, we consumers and we potential house buyers, if you like, are probably just going to be scaling back on our wishes to invest. You know, we, we are aware, the consumers are aware that price are falling. I think the Westpac Consumer Sentiment Survey, when it came out in the middle of last month, had a had a question about uh, is it a desirable time to buy a house, um, and that was actually quite weak. So consumers are aware that prices are pretty weak from an investor perspective. It's harder to get a loan. Rental yields are still pretty low. Uh, the stock market's actually done reasonably well in the last uh, 12 months. And I, I think it was about a 12% lift during last financial year. So I think there's this asset allocation decision that's, that's only going against housing at the moment. So it looks as if we've probably got at least another six months, perhaps 12 months before we find the bottom of the housing market. So you would anticipate the further falls in the house prices? It does. Yes, it appears that way uh, on those fundamental grounds. And the other thing that uh, I think we should mention is that at this stage, a lot of the smaller banks have announced hikes in their lending rates. Yeah, the Bank of Queensland, Bendigo Bank and others, they've hiked the mortgage rates for owner occupiers by about 10 basis points, so 0.1 of a percent. So in a sense, it doesn't sound a lot, uh, but they're facing higher funding costs from these global market conditions, the US Federal Reserve's hiking rates, and that's sort of spilling over into our um, into our markets and the cost of capital for banks. So we've also got this slight increase in mortgage rates occurring. And as I said, look, it's, it's not yet a concern. 10 basis points shouldn't be the make or break on a mortgage. But you know, if you think about a lot of people with their mortgage of, say, 400000 or even 500000 10 basis points is another four or $500 a year in your interest costs. That's, okay, that's $30 to $40 a month, $10 a week. That's not going to be spent in the economy because you're using that money to pay your higher interest rate. So there's another thing that's going against the housing market right now. So you're anticipating house, house prices falling further over the next 12 months, and then in 12 months' time, the RBA might be in a position to start lifting rates. Well, that's the $64 question. Um, gosh, uh, They've they've wanted to hike rates for the last uh, little while, but haven't obviously because as the inflation and wage numbers have come out, yeah, you know, they've they've had no reason to. So we'll see what happens. Look, I think the jury's out on interest rates. Obviously, they're not going to do anything for the near term. Uh, they've got to wait and see what what happens to housing, what happens to wages, the unemployment rate, and the like. And of course, global conditions, which are still pretty good. There's a few little cracks emerging on the global horizon in terms of eurozone growth, Chinese growth, and the like. But basically, 
yeah, the conditions are still okay, and um, I'd prefer to think that we've still got the jury out on on monetary policy. And the Reserve Bank really need to see, uh, well, a little bit later this month. I think it's the twenty fifth of July. We get the next quarterly inflation number. In the middle of August, we get the next wages numbers. And given the importance of both wages and inflation to RBA thinking, they're the ones that the, the RBA must see before they update their outlook for rates. Whether it's up or down is still a line ball question, to be fair. But the issue is, I mean, with the falling housing prices and then you've got uh, wages growth, which is going nowhere, and you've got unemployment, which seems to be stuck around 5.6%, these are not good signs. Indeed. And then, and then you get the consumer side. And remember that consumer demand is a little over 50% of the economy. Over half of GDP is consumers. And when you've got this dynamic, as you touched on, with, with wealth being eroded from the falling house prices, with very low levels of savings, wages growth not really giving you the purchasing power to go out and spend, then the consumer side of the economy is very weak. And and that can happen from time to time. It's a matter of how weak. But to get that 3% plus GDP forecast that both Reserve Bank and Treasury in the budget numbers just a couple of months ago were forecasting, you need non-household spending to be very, very strong. And that is things like dwelling uh, construction, which appears to be peaking. It could be non-mining business investment, which actually does look good. There is some activity going on there, thankfully. And it appears to be things like public sector infrastructure, which is also quite strong. So there's a there are a couple of offsets to it. But the concern is that uh, the household sector will drag these other elements still lower uh, but we need a lot of strength, more than we're currently seeing in the non-consumer side of the economy, for there to be GDP growth sustained anywhere near 3%. My hunch is that more likely we're going to be sort of two and a quarter to two and a half GDP. If that's the case, then as you touched on, the unemployment rate continues to hover around about five and a half percent with the odd monthly volatility sort of pushing it a bit up or a bit down around that number. So these low housing prices would indicate that the economy is likely to keep just muddling along and go nowhere near the 3% growth. Yeah, nowhere near the 3%. I think that's the central case. And as we sort of touched on before, the risks and you know economics and economic forecasting and the like is all about risks. I think the risks have tilted more to the downside. So if I'm wrong with my concerns about the economy into next year, it'll be because the economy is even weaker and not stronger than I'm thinking. And that's because of this, this wealth effect from housing, as you touched on, the high household debt levels, making consumers vulnerable. Yeah, as we said, the out-of-cycle interest rate hikes from the banks is still coming through, so people will be paying more. And the business confidence and uh, sentiment numbers have just taken a little tilt lower as well. Again, not bad, but certainly not strong. And that's the sort of environment where if, if, if we were to sort of say, what are the risks uh, for the economy going into the second half of 2018 and then into 2019, I'd say they're more likely to be down than up. Uh, which is not a good sign then. And uh, in the meantime, we can expect to see house prices continuing to fall and uh, the economy going nowhere. And the house price is falling indeed. And we've seen um, there is actually a little bit of a lag between auction clearance rates and the actual house prices, of course. Uh, and we've just seen just this past weekend... Um, the auction clearance rates in Sydney and Melbourne, they're around about 50% or a little bit less. And there's been a lot of properties withdrawn from even the auction. So they don't even get to the auction day because there's no buyers registered to buy. So that's a clear sign that uh, vendors still have an unrealistic expectation of what they're going to get for their property. And buyers are saying, well, I'll pull out and pull back for the moment. Um, I'll wait for the vendors to drop their prices by, you know, even 
five, yeah, three or five percent, which on a house is an awful lot of money. Um, so the, the the outlook for housing to me appears to be very much down. As you say, the falling house prices are an indicator of which way the economy is tracking. Indeed, and it's an important wealth effect, and it's an important uh, driver of just how wealthy we feel. And you know, the the academic literature has got tons of information that when you're feeling wealthy, even if it's the house that you live in, and okay, you're still going to live in the house whether it goes up or down five or ten percent. But if you're feeling wealthy, you'll use that equity in the house as a means to reduce your savings and increase your spending. For example, that's one way that the mechanism of of wealth impacts on consumer spending. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. An absolute pleasure. So what is happening in the news? Well, Asian trade ministers took another step towards creating what could be the world's biggest trading block on Sunday, expressing hope that a deal could be signed by the end of this year. Ministers from the 16-nation Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, which includes China, Japan and India, but not the US, met in Tokyo on Sunday to try and thrash out remaining differences. If ever fully achieved, the partnership would also include the 10 members of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations as well as South Korea, Australia and New Zealand. It would cover one third of the world's economy, almost half its population. Now, any further progress on RCEP could put pressure on the US to consider rejoining the TPP as the US-China trade war continues. Now, U.S. President Donald Trump's tariffs on $34 billion worth of Chinese goods are scheduled to kick in on July the 6th, a move that China has vowed to retaliate against. And while we're on the subject of trade, Donald Trump's administration has drafted a bill that proposes abandoning fundamental principles of the World Trade Organization. The Fair and Reciprocal Tariff Act, dubbed the FART Act, would give the President licence to raise tariffs without congressional consent and sidestep international rules. The legislation, reportedly ordered by Mr Trump himself, would mark an extraordinary shift in trade policy, allowing the US to raise tariffs above ceilings agreed by World Trade Organisation countries and set different rates for individual nations outside of free trade agreements. And to Australia... And the RBA kept official interest rates unchanged at 1.5% in July, extending its record streak of policy inaction into a 21st consecutive meeting. The last time the RBA moved rates was in August 2016, nearly two years ago, a trend that looks set to continue for some time. And house prices are falling in most Australian capital cities, dragged down by tighter investment standards and less investment going into the property market. Property industry analyst CoreLogic released property data this week showing home prices fell 0.2% in June. They are now 0.8% lower over the year on a national basis. That makes it the ninth consecutive month-on-month drop. It also means house prices have fallen 1.3% since the real estate market peaked in September last year. Now, the weakest capital cities were Sydney, which was down 0.9%, and Melbourne, which was down 1.4%. Their median prices were down to $870,554 and $716,774, respectively. Now, all of that is bad news for property owners who are mortgaged up to their eyeballs and carrying masses of debt. And while we're on the housing industry, 
The total number of building approvals issued in Australia was down a seasonally adjusted 3.2% in May. Now, figures released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics show they came in at 17,791. That was shy of expectations for a flat reading following the 5% decline in April. On a yearly basis, approvals added 3.1%, again missing forecasts for 9.9%, but still up from 1.9% in the previous month. And the Australian manufacturing sector has ended the year in top shape, with the Australian Industry Group Australian Performance of Manufacturing Index coming in at 57.4. Now that figure is just down 0.1 point. But the figures still record the 21st month of continuous expansion. Because you see, any reading above 50 indicates expansion in activity, and the distance from 50 indicates the strength of the increase. Now six of the seven Activity sub-indexes expanded in June, with the new orders sub-index defying an end-of-year reduction in new orders cited by some respondents. The employment sub-index remains buoyant, pointing to stable or expanding conditions since late 2016. And the manufacturing sales sub-index rose by 10.8 points to 61.2 points. That's after dropping 12.1 points in May. Now, truth is, that sub-index has been above 60 points for the three of the last four months, and that suggests the disruption to sales growth in May was just temporary. And the ANZ Australian Job Advertisement Series fell 1.7% in June, reversing the 1.4% gain recorded last month. This was the fourth monthly decline in six-month of data released for 2018, though those falls do follow the very strong rise in January. On an annual basis, growth slowed from 11.5% in May to 6.9% in June. And that is the weakest annual growth since the second half of 2016. And a new report from the Australian Securities and Investments Commission has found that Australians owe $45 billion in credit card debt and more than one in six are struggling with repayments. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission found that while 18.5% of consumers are overwhelmed by debt, banks and credit card companies are having a fab time with interest being reaped on $31.7 billion of a total $45 billion worth of debt. ASIC has warned against lax credit limits and debt traps, specifically credit card offers that allow balance transfers from one card to another. Deputy Chairman Peter Kell has also said that despite proactive rules introduced in 2012, Lenders such as City, Latitude, American Express and Macquarie had failed to adopt proactive measures and 525,000 customers are paying more interest than they need to. And funeral insurance business Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund has been accused of misleading Indigenous customers into paying $10,000 in premiums for a maximum of only $8,000 payout and appropriating Indigenous iconography. Now, the business was portrayed as a rainbow servant and it gave the illusion of traditional ownership. Now, the Royal Commission into Financial Services has been in Darwin this week, specifically examining financial misconduct with Indigenous communities, funeral insurance and superannuation. And Australia's spy chief and top diplomat have warned major Australian boards about the possibility of further trade disruption and cyber attacks from China in an effort to help the business community better understand the Turnbull government's tough line on Beijing. The briefings by Duncan Lewis, Director-General of the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, or ACO, and Francis Adamson, Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, have been conducted in recent months with companies that have major trade exposure to China. 
The briefings appear to be an attempt to educate major company boards on the thinking behind the federal government's increasingly tough stance towards China and its view that Beijing is seeking to interfere in Australia's domestic affairs. And Federal Workplace Minister Craig Lowndy says he'll follow up allegations of workplace exploitation by the restaurant business Rockpool Dining Group. And the wages umpire, the Fair Work Ombudsman, will investigate the private equity-owned Rockpool over claims that staff are working unpaid overtime. Now, Fairfax Media published allegations last weekend from anonymous staff alleging that workers at Saki and Munich Browhouse restaurants in the group are working up to 20 hours of unpaid overtime a week, leaving them hundreds of dollars of out of pocket. Rockpool Dining Group Chief Executive Officer Thomas Pash has denied the allegations. He's called them spurious, inaccurate, and he says they give an incomplete picture of the company's practices. But the Fair Work Ombudsman said the claims would be investigated. Now, Rockpool Dining Group is attempting to build Australia's first billion-dollar hospitality business by 2021, with plans to float on the ASX. Leading chef Neil Perry is the company's chief brand and culinary officer. Perry sold the Rockpool business to the former urban purveyor group best known for its sake Japanese restaurants and the Bavarian beer houses for a reported $65 million in 2016. Now, the Rockpool Dining Group business is owned by Quadrant Private Equity, and the group has 16 restaurant brands in more than 60 venues across Australia. And they include the former Perry Ventures, Rockpool Bar and Grill, Rosetta, Spice Temple, Bergen Project, Fratelli Fresh and the Cut Steakhouse. The company employs around 3,000 people and it says it will have up to $350 million in sales in FY18, resulting in a profit of up to $40 million. And the business says it's growing at 20 to 30% a year and it says it's on track to have $1 billion in turnover by FY21, but it's being investigated for wage theft. And Sigma Healthcare shares plunged more than 45% to seven-year lows after the pharmacy operator lost a pharmaceutical supply contract to Chemist Warehouse and it had to cut its earnings guidance. What happened was that Ebos Group, a pharmaceutical distributor and pet food company, has awarded a five-year contract to distribute pharmaceutical products to more than 400 chemist warehouse and my chemist stores. And the Commonwealth Bank has been served with another class action. This time, law firm Fee Finney MacDonald served it on behalf of shareholders who acquired an interest in the bank from the 16th of June 2014 to the 3rd of August 2017. And this action is similar to the one served by Morris Blackburn last October, representing shareholders who suffered massive losses as a result of the CBA share price falling in response to legal proceedings by Austrac against Australia's biggest bank. And of course, CBA says it will vigorously defend this new claim. Now, this class action is significant for Fee Finney MacDonald. You see, in May, it filed a class action in the federal court on behalf of AMP shareholders. And Google's managing director of Australia New Zealand, Jason Pellegrino has jumped ship to become chief executive of online real estate portal Domain. An email to Domain staff from executive chairman Nick Falloon announced the appointment saying Mr Pellegrino will start the role on August the 27th after almost 10 years at the search giant. And finally, Australian wine giant Penfolds is extending its influence to the United States. It will be making wine from the grapes in California's Napa Valley, from the 2018 harvest. And Penfolds, which is part of the Treasury Wine Estate Stable, will be offering its US source wines in 2022. And that's it for this week. And next week I have a terrific interview with Phil Hodgson from the Calix Group, and he'll be talking to us all about R&D incentives for business.
In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBlaDoubleZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.